we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. The mind that opens to a new idea never returns to its original size. Wasn't Albert Einstein right? That's why we have America Out Loud Pulse. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and thank you for tuning in. The cost of medical care is a big topic in healthcare policy discussion these days, whether it's in Congress or in think tanks. Over the last few years, costs for medical care have continued to rise until 2021. With the out-of-control inflation, medical care prices had generally grown faster than overall consumer prices. We're talking in the last 20 years, medical care costs went up over 115%, whereas the prices of other consumer goods and services went up 78%. One of my particular bugaboos is hospital facility fees. They, I just find them very concerning. We all know every institution has some overhead, and that's what the facility fee is. And that's charged in addition to professional charges, but sometimes they seem way out of whack. And now patients are complaining that the hospitals are charging a facility fee for telemedicine. And they're quite high. Admittedly, the overhead is a computer, a room, but is that the same as full services? To me, it looks like a way to just get more money off of people. So the emergency room is a particular hotbed for these high facility fees. Over the last 15 years, facilities fees for the ERs have increased over 500%. And that's when professional fees in the same time period only went up about 100%. So who knows what's going on there, but it seems like a lot of price gouging. And hopefully we'll get into that today too. But healthcare policy isn't just about saving money. Otherwise, we just ration care. Human beings, real human beings, underlie the reason we provide medical care in the first place. So we've got to look at limitations on access for certain groups of people, the ethics of really what bothers me, government involvement in highly personal matters. My guest today has taught economics and the ethics of healthcare for over 20 years. And one theme I really resonate that resonates with me was he always said, always be skeptical. He said, healthcare policy debates tend to be drenched through and through with myths, opinions, and politics, all masquerading as scientific facts. Robert Grayboys is an economist, journalist, and musician in Alexandria, Virginia. He publishes Bastiat's Window, an online journal exploring economics, ethics, health, technology, and our culture. He has a PhD in economics from Columbia University. He's been an economist at the Federal Reserve and an economics professor and healthcare scholar at the Mercatus Center. 
He's the author of Fortress and Frontier in American Healthcare and received the Reason Foundation's 2014 Bastiat Prize for Journalism. Welcome to the show, Bob Gray Boys. Well, hello again, Marilyn, as always. Great seeing, great talking to you and seeing your picture out there. <laughs> well, I'm seeing your picture right now. You had recently written a long article called Six Lessons in Healthcare Mythology, subtitled Exaggerations, Half-Truths, Non-Sequiturs, and Falsehoods in Policymaking. That is a mouthful, and I'd like to go through that because we just hear all these people talk, 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 and I don't remember who said it, where they said, talk is cheap unless it happens in Congress. And that seems like that's all people do and nothing really gets done. We see that the Affordable Care Act turned out to be unaffordable. And who knows if it really increased people's ability to receive the kind of medical care that they need. I think the jury's still out on that. One of the things you as an economist have looked at healthcare as a good and service, just like any other thing. And one of the big things you say that is a big myth that people talk about, they say, well, you can't talk, you know, with economists about it because healthcare is different. Well, you say healthcare isn't all that different. Explain to us why. Well, sure. And I'll, I'll quote a good friend of mine. Uh, let, and let me, let me start off by saying I uh, uh, all of this, as you said, is from an article on my Substack, uh, Bastiat's Window, B-A-S-T-I-A-T apostrophe S Window. If you if you want to read it or subscribe to it, it's at Grayboys, G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S dot Substack dot com. That's G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S dot Substack dot com. And I tell you that because I really would like people who enjoy this podcast to say, well, I would like to see a lot more. And uh, and I will only scratch the surface. I will throw out some provocative points that we will not have time to uh, make the case for in the short time we have together. And I'd love them to go there and say, well, what's he talking about? So for instance, in your opening, uh, I would, if I were... Um, to go at it, I would say, well, here's a couple of things. You can make an argument that emergency rooms are the cheapest place in America to get primary care. You can make a legitimate argument that uh, uh, the rise in healthcare prices is not at all outlandish, that it reflects some real trends that reflect some of our personal desires and our own spending habits that, uh, and, and we'll get into that a bit, bit later as to why that is. Uh, but a friend of mine who I have, I have his book linked in that article, David Goldhill, who wrote a wonderful book called uh, uh, Catastrophic Care. And I'm doing it from memory, how American healthcare killed my father and how we can make it better. David's a brilliant guy, a, a CEO of some noted businesses. And anyway, he's made a statement in there that uh, that I think is the most profound statement out there in understanding healthcare policy. He said, "Well, healthcare is different, 
but primarily because we decide that it's different. In other words, there's, there's nothing intrinsic to healthcare that makes it different or somehow exempt from the laws of economics. Uh, we decide to treat it differently, so it tends in some ways to act differently because we've made that conscious decision. And really, we made that conscious decision uh, just a little over 100 years ago and increased it increased it over the, the last century. But the laws of economics work perfectly well within economics. We throw some weird ringers into it that make it look a bit crazy. But the moment you say, well, the laws of economics don't apply, you are sort of giving carte blanche to anyone to come in, Congress to come in and say, well, if economics doesn't work, we'll do the job of economics for it and pass all sorts of uh, things that end up validating what David said in that great statement and just making making the problems worse as we go along. Well, so how does not treating healthcare like a regular economic good ruin it? What what is it that people do that you know when they try to twist it and say, well, you can't treat it as if it's going to the grocery store. You can't treat it and throw in competition or patient choice. Certainly not patient choice because they get wheeled in on a gurney and they're half dead. So they can't make these choices. I've always said, and I tell people all the time in person and on this show, in reality, most people aren't wheeled in on a stretcher half dying. Most of our lives, we go through having ordinary day-to-day problems. So how do you explain this, this economic, I don't know, cognitive dissonance? Right. And and you've, you've hit on an extremely important point. People do that having a heart attack and on a gurney thing. And, and therefore, I don't know, the government should run everything in healthcare. Um, the, the argument is where well, you're in a crisis situation, you can't do comparative shopping. You can't ask um, five different doctors to give you quotes, whatever. Uh, and my argument is that's exact equivalent to saying, um, you know, when your toilet is overflowing uh, and filling up your second floor with with water, uh, you can't shop around for a plumber. So therefore, the government should take over the entire impl- appliance and plumbing industry. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, most healthcare is not critical care like that. Most care- healthcare is preventive care, it's routine maintenance. Even if you have serious problems, it's things that you can do sort of slowly. So I don't know, you've got cancer and you're getting chemotherapy and it's terrible, but you do have time to say, well, do I like this doctor or do I want to actually look into getting a second opinion and maybe switching doctors, whatever. So first of all, the heart attack on a gurney is a very, very small part of of, of health care. I have a dear friend who on her routine chest x-ray, they saw that she had an aneurysm in her aorta. And the doctor said, it's small now, but let me hook you up with a cardiac surgeon. So if something does happen, he knows your history, he or she knows your history, your name's on the books, the people in the ER will know who to call. Same thing. Yep, absolutely. So when you're on 
that gurney having the heart attack with that small part of healthcare, you did it in, in a proper world, you have the ability to plan for such contingencies and establish the relationships that will get you through the crisis. Uh, and now, because we treat healthcare differently and we do all sorts of um, strange machinations to prevent markets from working, uh, it very well may be that you don't have that relationship at that time. And, uh, and then we say, well, see, healthcare doesn't work like other fields. But it's because we've done things that screw it up. We've created a dysfunctional insurance system. Uh, we have uh, we have made situations where consumers are of necessity ignorant because we simply do not have the capacity. We have decided to omit certain institutions uh, that allow consumers to learn what's going on. You know, one of the one of the chestnuts that they always throw up is, well, healthcare is different because it's about life and death. Well, it's not at all unique uh, in that respect. And I'd say that uh, the guy who installs my gas heater has as much control over my life and death as any surgeon does. If he, In fact, it's probably easier to screw up a gas heater than it is for a surgeon to screw me up when there's a, a whole room full of other professionals in there working with said doctor. Uh, the guy who fixes my brakes at the mechanic, that person also takes my life into, um, uh, you know, into his or her hands. Uh, I, I used to throw an exercise at my students where I would say, how many of you, um, you know, has anyone here flown recently? And, you know, always somebody raised their hand. And I said, where'd you go? Well, I flew to California. I said, who was your pilot? I don't know. So, well, where did your pilot study flying? Well, I don't know. I mean, how many hours of flight time did the pilot have? I don't know. So, so do you know anything about your pilots? No. I said, well, okay. How many in here uh, had surgery? Uh, and someone raised their hand. Said, who was your doctor? Oh, it was Dr. Smith. Where Dr. Smith studied? Uh, Georgetown University. How many years had been Dr. Smith been working? About twenty-seven years. So, well, okay, why do you know all those things about your doctor? Well, because it's life and death. And then I said, well, why don't you know anything about the pilot? Because you know, a pilot can kill more people with one quick second of bad decision-making than a poor doctor can kill off in an entire lifetime of malpractice. And I would ask them, what's different? Why do you care so much about who your doctor is, but not who your um, uh, your pilot is? And I would, and, and my students were doctors and nurses. These were mid-career professionals. And I remember one year they went through this, and I was pretty good at dealing with their answers. Uh, they would say, "Well, it's because of this," and I'd say, "Well, no, that doesn't that that answer doesn't work because of such and such." And we go back and forth. And I would shoot down all of their answers. And I only got, in all the years I did that exercise, I only got one answer that I thought actually hit the topic right. So, uh, you know, we had been through all of these different um, answers that I shot down. And then this nurse goes, I'll tell you what's different. Because the pilot never says, take your clothes off. <laughs> 
<laughs> Very good. And I just started laughing. And I said, honest to God, I said, I've never gotten that answer, but I actually think you've hit it. I think you've hit it. Why, why do we treat healthcare differently? Because there is this sort of creepy intimacy that's involved in medicine that is not involved in any other field. And because of that, we set up all sorts of institutional features that, that obstruct markets from working, ob obstruct the laws of economics from doing the jobs that they're supposed to be. Um, and I said, I think you're really onto something that if there is a single unique feature to that makes healthcare different, you have hit it. And, uh, and I said, and so I think we, in, in, we, we may not be doing things that are actually medically prudent. We're doing things because we have a sort of um, a, a rational or irrational, maybe icky. We do irrational things because we have this icky feeling about giving another human being that sort of intimate control over your life. Uh, and it, and then, it, it is, uh, you know, uh, this one-on-one -on -one thing that's so important. I once had a patient who um, loved basketball and would go to the forum and see the Lakers games and whatnot. And after the surgery, he said, you know, what you guys did is worth millions of dollars. You saved my life. And he said, it's strange to me how somebody who plays basketball can make millions and millions of dollars and you know, they don't one-on-one -on -one save a life. They might lessen anxiety for people cheering at sports rather than beating their wives. But he said, the difference is their entertainment value. You're focused on that life saving. So it's another aspect of this one-on-one -on -one intimacy that in that sense does make healthcare different. Yeah, yes, yes. But the question is, do we then take... So there is that aspect that is different. Do we then take that and create artificial differences that need not exist? And I think if you get into the articles that uh, that I link to, and by the way, I, my article links to quite a few pieces, or at least, yeah, quite a few pieces. And when you get into them, there are further links. Um, you can spend quite a bit of time just hitting the, the links in my article. Uh, but because there is that strange, unconventional intimacy to medicine, we, uh, we then say, well, then we need to establish all these other, other aspects that make healthcare different. And it's those extras that we throw on there. You know, for instance, we need to, because of this feature, we need to have the government uh, heavy duty oversight and maybe the government should pay the doctors and, we should put, place limits on competition and we could, we must do this and that and the other that then actually impede the useful things that um, healthcare mar that markets do in other fields. So it's not that there aren't some differences with healthcare, but we exaggerate them uh, in ways that are probably not productive for us. Well, we'll go through some of those ways after the break and talk about some of the big myths that have been driving healthcare policy down the wrong road. For now, I'm going to talk about one of the right roads that I've been going down since this whole COVID thing came out. 
Fortunately for all of us, COVID seems to be winding down and turning into yet another virus that's going to be roaming around in our atmosphere and, you know, probably will never go away, just like common colds never go away. But one of the ways that I tried to keep healthy when it was rampant was using something called Cofix RX. Cofix RX is simple. It's a nasal spray and it has iodine and xylitol, both of which are very antiviral. And most of these respiratory viruses that make us sick come in through the nose. So what makes more sense than using a nasal spray? Nip it in the bud, catch it when those viruses are replicating in the first two to five days. And we can hopefully reduce the impact of the illness, if not make it so you don't get sick at all. One of my favorite things about Cofix RX, other than seems to work, knock on wood, I've been doing pretty well, is that it was invented by a USA doctor and manufactured in the USA, which of course is real important these days since we know China has such a stranglehold on drug manufacturing. So this is something that's made right here in the U.S. Cofix RX is sold at health food stores and you can get it in medical offices and pharmacies. And so you can just look on our webpage. There's a little button on there for Cofix RX. Just click it on. You can read more about it. You can buy it and decide for yourself. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Let's get back to the show. So we're talking about some of the myths that drive healthcare policy down the wrong road. And let's start with one of the big myths that American healthcare spends more money, but we don't get good results. Tell me why that is a myth and what makes that wrong. Right, and remember, remember that um, a, a key in the subtitle of my article is, uh, and I don't have it in front of me, you, you probably do, uh, that these come in, I don't know, four varieties. So there are the outright falsehoods. There are the half-truths, the thing that are, they're kind of true, but um, but then we carry those things too far. 
there are the exaggerations and there are the non sequiturs, things that they're, it's true, but it doesn't matter so much. So, yes, we do spend more on healthcare in the United States than anyone else. But part of it is because we in the United States spend more on everything than, than other countries do. Uh, our saving rate is low. And so we just, we shovel money out into everything, whether it's travel, whether it's transportation, whether it's entertainment, whether it's medicine. And so by all means, yes, we, we spend more, but uh, part of it really doesn't have much to do with the healthcare system. It has to do with Americans. We're wealthy and we spend a lot and we don't save as much as some other countries do. Uh, but that's not just solely a problem in healthcare. It's uh, it's it is a fact about our entire economy. Now, a couple of things. Yes, we we do spend more, but we also why do we what in what ways do we demand more? Well, we we in America expect better stuff than other countries are willing to accept. There are other countries, uh, you know, there go into specific examples, but you know, in Britain, the National Health Service says, we're not going to cover this. Well, I'll give you a couple of abbreviations. They have something called NICE, NICE, uh, which, um, which means the, let's see, National, uh, it's been a while since I've thought of it, National Institute of, um, I'd have to think of what it means, but the abbreviation stands, it's the entity that decides what the National Health Service will pay for and how much they're going to pay for it. Um, I, I listened to a British economist talking about it. He said, it, the official name of the agency is NICE. He said, but I prefer to call it nasty, which means not available, so treat yourself. <laughs> and and there are lots of those things where <clears throat> these other other healthcare systems say you don't get this. It's just simply not part of your coverage. Americans wouldn't stand for it. If you look at Canada, for instance, there are all sorts of drugs that we as Americans expect when we're sick, <clears throat> and. Um, we would go ballistic if that were not provided by our insurance plans. But in Canada, they're perfectly willing to say, well, the government has said that we're not going to get it, so we just don't get it. Um, so we're very demanding here. Another thing is we want what we want now, and that's expensive. I like it. Uh, so back in 2007, I interviewed for a professorship out in British Columbia, Western Canada. And it was a gorgeous place, absolutely magnificent in the mountains above uh, Vancouver. And I had to think, do I actually, am I willing to do this? Because I've been a critic of Canadian healthcare for a long time. But is it really enough to make me turn down a job in a place that this, that's this beautiful in what seemed to be a rather interesting professorship? So I thought about one particular practical problem. My wife, about every, I would say, somewhere between every eight to 10 years, <clears throat> she goes for her routine mammogram. And the doctor looks at it, the radiologist says, well... I think it's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong, but there's some spots on here. And 
I don't think they're anything, but I don't want to take chances. So tomorrow morning, we want you to go for a biopsy. And um, want you to go for a biopsy. And so the next morning, she has a sleepless night. The next morning, she has a biopsy. You know, usually that afternoon, they say it's fine. It's, it was just calcification. But if it ever came to me that they said, no, it's not calcification, it really is the bad stuff, she would probably be in treatment, either surgery or chemo or um, radiation, whatever was called for. She'd probably be on it within a couple of days, certainly no more than a week. I said, what if this happened if in British Columbia? And I looked up the statistics <clears throat> and it turned out that a woman who had the suspicious speckles on the um, mammogram, average wait time for the biopsy was, and this is a long time ago, so I may be slightly off my memory, but I don't think so. I think it was, if you get the bad mammogram, it will take on average a month to get you the biopsy. And if the biopsy turns out to say you've got the bad stuff, I believe the average, if I remember correctly, was 17 weeks before you would begin any treatments. And I just said to my wife, you know what? I'm not willing to put you through that ever, nor do I want to go through it if I've got something equivalent to that. Now, in Canada, they're perfectly willing to say, sure, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to wait a month for a biopsy and I'll be glad to wait 17 weeks for treatment once that you find I've got cancer. Americans aren't willing to put up with that. And that means you've got to have a lot of excess capacity built into the system to take people right away when that sort of thing happens. So that's another reason we spend more than everyone else. And another reason uh, that, that shows up in let's see, lesson four of my six lessons, some healthcare trends don't result from healthcare. American doctors earn, if I remember correctly, roughly twice what Canadian doctors do. People say, well, why can't we get doctors to, um, to, uh, to you know, accept what Canadian doctors do? And I used to use a figure, I found some specialty that um, some aspect, I think, of primary care, where in the U.S., the average income for the doctor is $200,000 a year, and in Canada, it was $100,000 a year. And so I would ask my students, well, what if you're told, well, from now on, you're going to keep doing what you're doing, but your pay is going to be $100,000 instead of $200,000? Well, I'll ask you, Marilyn, what, what, what happens to you if you're told that, that, uh, okay, you're, we're going to cut your income in half, so you'll be paid like a Canadian doctor, what would you do? Well, it's, it's interesting because that's a, that's a big question that depending on your office <clears throat> and you have people working for you and those people were making a salary that was based on you making enough money to pay them that salary, your rent isn't going to go down. All these things that go into, this would be a private practice, that go into private practice aren't going to go down. And we've seen this happen in real life. I'll never forget when in California, 
the Medicaid program ran out of money. And so instead of being paid by Medicaid, we were sent a quote unquote check that said, I owe you on it. And I thought, well, now, isn't that interesting? So for a few months, instead of being paid for my Medicaid patients, I received an IOU. Now, when I got my gas bill and my electric bill, I couldn't send them a piece of that check from California that was an IOU. Eventually, the banks started accepting them and we could get some money. And so you look at the whole picture that you, okay. If you didn't have the other expenses, then okay, you'd take the $100,000. If you still yeah. had the expenses and still were working just as hard, which of course is another element that goes in it, that you don't work on shifts in private practice, you're on call basically 24-7, depending on your setup, and you have people you have coverage, that you wouldn't want to work as hard. My colleagues from Great Britain in my anesthesia program said, you know, four o'clock, their shift was over. Didn't matter where you were in the case. A new group of people just came in and took over the case. So suddenly it's a whole different way of medical practice that I don't think our patients would like to see. Right. And I, yeah, I had a friend who was stationed in the army in Germany, and he said they had a statement there. It's okay to have a heart attack at 359. Do not have a heart attack at 401 um, p.m. Uh, because no one's going to take care. But okay, let's let what I was really getting at is okay, if if you were suddenly told we're gonna cut your salary in half, you might stay there because you know you're I, I think you're like my age and and you're a trained doctor and you're not trained for anything else uh, that you where you could even earn half that much but if you let's say we made an announcement from now on doctors in the united states and across the specialties will now earn half of what they've been earning They're, we're going to pay you like canadian doctors what would happen to the medical profession systematically or systemically? People well, would stop going into medicine. Yes. People would say people would who had who were at a point with an, in life with an option say, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do a doctor's work for a hundred thousand. Because of that, I'll be an accountant. I'll program software. I'll start a plumbing business. I'll do something. I'm not going to do that for what Canadian doctors get. Now, what makes it different? Why, why, do Canadian, why are Canadian doctors willing to do it? It's because, frankly, in Canada, they don't have the options for high earning income that a bright, young, prospective doctor in the United States does. Uh, we've got so we there are a lot of ways you can make a lot of money in the U.S., not so many ways to do so in Canada, at least on the margin there. Yes, they have some high paid computer programmers and such too, but not in the quantities that could absorb a large chunk of the medical profession. Here, you would have an exodus from, from medicine, from medical schools. Uh, you would have people early in their career saying, that's it, I'm out of this. I'm young enough, I can do something else in life. And so really what drives physician salaries in the United States to a large extent is not something related to healthcare and medicine. It's related more toward 
the tech industry and the financial industry and the legal industry and the accounting industry uh, in the alternatives. And I, I, I gave an example. It's not my example. I borrowed it from a famous economist who said that in the early 1800s, you could hire four people to do a uh, Beethoven string quartet for, and he gave the price of, of what it cost to hire a quartet back in the um, early 1800s. Fast forward 200 years, adjust for inflation. You, It's been a while since I've looked at it, but it seems to me it's like um, you have to pay, if you want to hire four people to do that quartet today, you're going to have to pay them in real terms I don't know what it was, 15, 20 times as much you, as you paid them back then. And there's nothing new about the way you play a Beethoven string quartet. What has changed is the sort of person capable of becoming a good musician and performing a Beethoven string quartet in 1820 didn't have a lot of other options in life. So they accepted what was a very low salary by our standards. Today, if you tried to pay them what those guys earned back then, no one would be willing to perform music for you, unless they were doing it kind of for kicks. You know, you know, I'm a musician. I'll be glad to perform for free if you've got a nice event. But if, if you're, but today there are just other options. <clears throat> and, the, and one reason we have to pay so much for doctors, for nurses, for technicians, for the IT people, for whatever, is because there are a lot of other things you can do in America other than be in medical care. Well, and one thing, you know, you're looking at the economic aspect, and of course, as a physician, and as you point out, somebody who's done it for a long time probably um, wouldn't have other skills to earn that same living, but also if you still want to be a doctor, what's the other way you cut back? How you cut back is the time that you put into the profession and it sure. starts to become the way of life. Whereas in my era, your way of life is being on call and, and working sometimes 24, sometimes as high as 48 hours straight, et cetera. You know, you just pour everything into it. You do get, you get, a emotional reward, you certainly get a financial reward for that. Well, when you still want that emotional reward, you'll say, well, I'll take it, but I'm going to take it eight hours at a time, not 48 hours at a time. So, or, or <laughs> I mean, look, mid 20th century medicine was thought of as one of the ultimate fields of where one was self-employed and you were your own boss and you yeah, that that is that memory, that nostalgia is a somewhat exaggerated, but to a great extent, American doctors earlier in the you know, mid twentieth century, you had an awful lot of self employment, and people who do that, you know, they're they're doing their own passion, they're their own boss, they work hard, they work long hours, they do things. If you're working for someone else, you're just not going to do it, uh, and we have shifted again. I don't think out of innate intrinsic aspects of medicine, but rather because you know, we've screwed up the markets enough that it's impossible to maintain uh, a sort of a solo practice. Uh, everyone works for someone else. And 
The fact is, in medicine, as in every other field, no one ever works as hard for someone else as they do for themselves. Uh, you know, the, the ultimate polar case of this is the old joke from the Soviet Union. We pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll get ready for the, our final segment. And I'd like to talk about something that has always bugged me, our statistics and data that try to make out like our health system is so bad. In the meantime, until we get to that, I want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And as you know, we are always a beat ahead. We're on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. The best part for me is the shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. Make it easy to find bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And remember, there's a different person on every day. That's kind of, to me, the fun part. I'm on on Mondays. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And we also have Nurses Out Loud. They're on on Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So lots of all different kinds of medical talk for you. And keep on listening. That's why we're here. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Bob Grayboys is here to tell us the right way, let's say, to think about how we can improve healthcare. But before we get to a couple of solutions, and this is another pet peeve of mine, is people don't have a good argument and they come up with these numbers that say how bad our healthcare is, and and the numbers sometimes make no sense. One that always used to bug me, they talk about our infant mortality and say our infant mortality is so high. But then you look at other countries such as France, they don't measure it the same. 
they don't consider it an infant till after 30 days. So if a baby dies before 30 days, it's not counted as an infant mortality. So tell us about some of the data and how it's been kind of manipulated. <clears throat> Absolutely, that's uh, that's in a number of the links that uh, that uh, that I mentioned in my article. So yes, the um, the United States historically has been sort of the one honest agent in uh, measuring infant mortality. The United Nations has specific guidelines that say this is how you should measure it. You know, if a child is born with vital signs, breathing, heartbeat, the child is is to be counted as a live birth. And if the child expires five minutes later, uh, that child is to be considered a live birth who then became an infant mortality case. Many of the countries in Europe that show up as better than the U.S. on infant mortality uh, measured, as you said, you know, Switzerland, uh, which I, I wrote a little bit about there, or I, I quoted some studies on it. If a child, a premature infant is born below a certain birth weight or a certain length in centimeters, doesn't matter if they are born alive and live for a while, they're counted as a stillbirth. And that explained much, if not all, of the difference, say, between the United States' infant mortality rate and Switzerland's. And that's true of a lot of the countries there. It's just a, a sort of a typical, for some reason, there are stigmas attached to uh, losing a live child that do not attach to a stillbirth. <clears throat> so in part, apparently some of this developed as a, a sort of a humane, we don't want to embarrass the family that they had a child die on them. Um, but nevertheless, it creates false imagery. Now, does the U.S. have higher infant mortality? We probably do. You talk about some of this data, and we aren't a very homogeneous population. In fact, we're very heterogeneous, have people from all over the place. But Just it great. seems... To me, which is wonderful, but our number one problem, and which shows that this is an American problem that's going worldwide, when you talk about uh, people from another country and their health change when they come here, well, now things are changing for the worse with regard to obesity. That sure. <laughs> we used to talk about thin Japanese people, Japanese people come to America and suddenly they become fatter. So our American diet is not great. And we can yeah. say what we want to say. And, but if people don't look at their own diet, we can tell them what to eat. But that becomes a personal choice. And we are a country that values personal choice. So that kind of feeds, uh, excuse the expression, into the equation. Yeah, and... and I used to teach when, when I was, I haven't taught in a few years, but every semester, and again, my students were medical professionals. I taught them, uh, they, they would read a wonderful book called The Fattening of America by Eric Finkelstein. And I, 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 I required this book 
not specifically because the topic of obesity, but because it was one of the best books I'd ever read that explains how you think about data, how you think about healthcare from an economic standpoint. Wonderful book on that. And one of the one of the keys to it is we'd actually don't really know, we don't really understand why obesity increased so much in the United States. I mean, in part, it is a condition of the very wealthy. Uh, you, we, we can afford to eat too much here, and that that has always been a significant part of the um, of, of the situation. And we were. We may just have been, because we are wealthier than other countries, we've been 20 to 30 years ahead of the curve in obesity. And now you're finding that, oh, well, these other countries are kind of catching up to us. Uh, we know the, the question was always, how do French people stay so thin when they eat all that French food? And we found that you know, an enormous percentage of the French population was popping uh, some equivalent to fen-fen and killing themselves with these diet medications that doctors dispensed like candy. Uh, but there, there are other aspects to it as well. Uh, I mean, one, of the, one of the great things in uh, that book, The Fattening of America, is just what a small change in calories is required to go from a thin population to a much heavier population. And a lot of it has to do with work conditions. We, in America, we like to work long hours. We're upwardly mobile and we tend now to <clears throat> eat lunch at our desk rather than going out for a walk, thereby costing us, I don't know, 50, 75 calories. Um, our commute times made differences in that because you know suddenly you, there was an hour, two hours that you might've used to go to the gym or to get some fresh air and exercise in the past, but now you're sitting on some in some vehicle, transporting from a distant suburb into a, a central city. So lots of these things, but but there are even some weirder aspects. The, the one that really fascinated me was uh, in over the same period that Americans suddenly became much more overweight uh, and obese. The same was happening with animals in America. Um, and you might say, okay, sure. Okay. The, so you're eating twice as much and you're giving your cat or your dog twice as many table scraps. But this even happened with laboratory animals on controlled diets. Uh, something strange was happening that not only were the people getting larger, so were animals. And, uh, now, it's been a few years since I read it. Maybe someone has said, no, that does that, that's garbage. But I don't think it's been refuted. Uh, and there are all sorts of theories. There are theories that have to do with um, changes in climate control in our houses, uh, that uh, when you live in a tightly tight you know, climate-controlled house with central air and central heating, you don't get some of the bacteria floating around that we used to, and maybe they were important for the gut biome. And there are just all sorts of aspects we really don't understand about obesity. Um, you know, we understand some things. We eat 
we eat a bit more and you don't you only have to eat a bit more to go from perpetually thin to perpetually gaining weight uh, the i remember again it's been a few years since i've taught this but i remember i would ask the students medical professionals okay so 50 years ago 40 years ago americans ate this much and they burned off this much through effort, through exercise, through uh, just normal bodily functions. I said, over that 40-year period, there were some changes in the math there. We were consuming more calories, and we were burning off fewer calories because of changes in lifestyle. I said, so that gap that opened up, how wide do you suppose it is? That Because it's that gap that drove obesity. And they would guess all sorts of things. I don't know, 500 a day, 600 calories a day? You know, no, it was about, it was less than 100 calories a day. So it was simply, we eat slightly more and we work off slightly fewer calories. And that little difference is enough. And if you do the math, uh, math on it you know you can with just opening up a hundred calorie gap <clears throat> um, i'm doing it from the, off the top of my head i think you can start gaining a pound a month uh indefinitely well so, my father yeah. used to say if you just ate one less piece of bread a day and everything else being equal you'd lose 10 pounds in a year and he's correct uh, i remember we were having a classroom discussion and this one student, a doctor, said, well, you know, I like the, uh, the, the calorie counts that the restaurants give you. He said, I went into Panera recently, and he said, they had my favorite sandwich. And I looked at the calories, and it was something like 850 calories. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's... Uh, there's another sandwich. I don't like it quite as much, but it only is 550 calories. So I'll do that. And so having that chart up on the wall uh, really made a 300 calorie difference for me. And I said, okay, I, yeah, that's interesting that it did. So, but I have a question. The, the question is, did that actually change your daily intake <clears throat> or did it leave you a bit hungry? And when you went back to the office, you just grabbed a um, Snickers bar out of the receptionist's uh, candy dish. And there was this pause from him. And he said, actually, it was two Twix bars. <laughs> and he said, you're right. I uncharacteristically went back and just had a couple of little candy bars, uh, which I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Which were worse yeah. for you than probably the sandwich, which probably. had some more goodies and lettuce and tomato and all sorts of stuff in there that uh, was better for you than the candy bars. I just I just looked at my clock and can you believe that we are out of time and we haven't even gotten to your solutions, which of course that means well, you'll have to, uh, that you, you have to come back because I, the solutions that we do try to focus on solutions and not just criticize, criticize, criticize. Um, this is it, 
As always, this has been very educational and fun. So you've said it out loud on the air. You'll come back. I'll be glad to. And uh, the only thing I'll say, looking at my list of what we didn't get to, just to tell the listeners, there's a whole lot of articles I link to and a whole lot of discussion I do on uh, how absolutely dead wrong ex- experts with expert knowledge of statistics can be and how misleading both on a sort of a global scale and on wrecking an individual patient's life because they don't quite understand the real meaning of the statistics there. Uh, and it, it, it should give you that skepticism that I preach about for any expert that you listen to. Uh, experts are humans. That's right. And including present company who is humble enough to say so. That, yeah, everybody isn't always right. And we all have a, a, a life experience and a point of view that we see things, see things through. And it even matters where we were educated, East Coast, West Coast, look at things very differently. So, well, this has been a great discussion and I thank you for coming and we'll organize it so you can come back and we can talk solutions, insurance, government, malpractice, all sorts of things that are involved in this entire healthcare process. And Fantastic. I look forward to it as always. Great. And for all the listeners, all I can say is thank you for listening yet again. And remember, we do have our feature of emailing questions. Send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And first names are fine. If you have a question, we'll try to get the answer to you. And it can be for the guests, for the host, but you're welcome to send them. And as always... Whether you agree or have other opinions about what you've heard, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.